before, uh, yeah, before we continue the word, just a, a quick uh, uh, announcement. Uh, at the end of our worship service, uh, again, pictures are going to be taken for house churches and Bible study classes, so if you can pop on out to the left, that would be cool. Uh, but also, um, at the end of our worship service, there will be uh, four people who are going on a missions conference this December to uh, St. Louis. It's a missions conference called uh, Urbana. Uh, mission convention, about 20,000 people from around the world, hundreds of different nations will be gathered there, and uh, four of our, at least four of our people will be going. Um, they'll be standing outside and uh, giving out letters that tell what that is about and how you can prayerfully uh, partner with them. So uh, if you could uh, just be aware of that so as you walk out of here, you can pick something up from them. That would be awesome. Um, I, I think I was in, well, no, I was about six years old in first grade when uh, my brother brought uh, a friend named Jeffrey home for the first time. Jeffrey, my brother, uh, Terry, was three years older, and Jeffrey was uh, a friend of my brother in, in school. Uh, fourth grade, I was in first grade. We also all knew each other through Taekwondo. And the first time Jeffrey came home, uh, I, you know, he, he was a friend of my brother, but he always treated me very well. Uh, I always wanted to do what my brother did, and so uh, whenever they jumped off a table pretending that they were Superman, I jumped off the table pretending I was Superman also. And, and uh, my brother would sometimes get annoyed, but Jeffrey never did. He was always uh, super kind, always welcomed me in, never said, oh, you're the bratty little brother, but always invited me to come and play uh, with them. And so there was kind of a, a special warmth in my heart whenever I would have uh, interactions with Jeffrey when he would come to our house. But it was during that time when I was six years old that my brother told me uh, that Jeffrey's parents were divorced. I had never heard that word before. I said, what does that mean? And he said, uh, they don't live together. And I said, that's really uh, weird. I said, why don't they live together anymore? And my brother just said, I don't know. Uh, they don't like each other anymore. So I said to him, where does Jeffrey live then? And he said, some days he lives with his mom. And some days he lives with his dad. And I thought to myself, wow, that's really sad. And I thought to myself, what would my life be like if that was my story? If some days I live with my mom and some days I live with my dad and mom and dad didn't like each other very much. Last week, we heard about a school shooting at a community college uh, right uh, in, in Oregon. Uh, Christians were targeted and killed. And in the aftermath of that, a lot of articles were written. And I uh, saw an article yesterday in a publication called the National Review. And what they did was they looked on Wikipedia and found a list of all of the school shootings in the past year. In the past year. And they found one common thread amongst all of these, from MIT to UCF, from college to grade school to everywhere in between, one common thread that almost every single one of these shooters had. Every single one almost came from families where their parents were divorced. And these boys, men who grew up committing these acts of mass murder, did not have uh, a father figure in their lives. As I was reading that, I thought, wow, that is a powerful social statement. Time Magazine did this study. They said three out of five children of divorce end up feeling as if one or the other parent does not like them, does not love them. 
Uh, the incidents and the statistics show that children of divorce are exponentially more likely to be angry, to have low self-esteem, and to find feelings of hopelessness within. Today, uh, we're going to talk about divorce. Uh, and this is one of the things that, man, I, if it weren't for us going through this series, I wouldn't talk about divorce because it's hard and it's messy and it's yucky and it might elicit some feelings of pain and of different things. But at the same time, I'm glad that we're going through this series because as we go through uh, these books of the Bible, we cannot ignore certain passages that we don't want to deal with. Right? That's why it's called the hard teachings of Jesus. Because this is a difficult teaching, and it may bring up some thoughts and feelings of anger and of bitterness and of sadness. But because we need to have a theology of marriage and of divorce, it's important that we go through these things and we talk through these things. Because so many people in our world and so many people in our churches have a skewed understanding of what marriage and what divorce are about. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple different passages. And as we get into this, I I need to say that if you have been uh, affected by divorce, either you have been through a divorce, which, you know, there are many in our day and in our culture and, and in here as well, or if you have had parents who have gone through divorce, this is not in any way, and I hope you, I, I think you understand this if you've been with us for a while. Uh, I'm not trying to induce guilt by any stretch. Uh, I'm not trying to, to bring up bad memories in order that you might get uh, angry or upset or walk out of here. That's not the point. The point is to lay down a biblical framework and a biblical guideline so that we can walk in it, so that we can find freedom and healing and redemption and restoration from the past in order that we might live in covenant faithfulness to God and to our calling as we move forward in the present and in the future. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read uh, verses 31 and 32, and then we're going to jump forward to Matthew chapter 19, which helps to kind of elucidate some of these teachings. Uh, Matthew 5, 31, continuing the Sermon on the Mount. This is God's word. Jesus says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. This is God's word. 
Hard teaching. First, uh, first thought, three thoughts. First thought here, here, first thing here is that God designed marriage to be permanent. Okay, God designed marriage to be permanent. So you see in uh, Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. They want to talk about divorce. But Jesus says, well, before we get to divorce, I want to talk about marriage. So they say, Jesus, let's go back to Deuteronomy 24 and Moses. And Jesus says, no, 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 let's go back to Genesis 2 and begin with God. He says, you can't begin a theology of divorce without talking about a theology of marriage. He says, don't you remember back in the beginning, before all of this, any of this talk about divorce came, God said there was a man and there was a woman. It's not good for them to be alone. And so he brought them together to be married. And it says the two will become one. The two will become one and they'll be united to each other. And this is the way it's supposed to be. You and me, as Francis and Lisa Chan say, you and me forever. Right? This is marriage. Right? You and me forever. The two become one. So we say at the end of uh, every vow, every pronouncement of marriage at a wedding ceremony, we say um, uh, the two have become one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. From the beginning, the creation order God's ordinance is that marriage is you and me forever. Husband and wife, male and female, in covenant, committed relationship forever till death do us part. Marriage is not a social institution. It's not a government rule. It's not something that we learn from Washington. It's not something we learn from Hollywood. It's something we learn from the Garden of Eden, something we learn from Scripture, not from government. It wasn't a bunch of cavemen who found some cave women and said, oh, me, Tarzan, you, Jane, let's get married together. No, it wasn't. It was God-ordained from the beginning of time. What two, when two become one, God's desire, his design, his plan is that it is a permanent marriage until death separates them. You understand this, and, and I'll explain it with a crude analogy. My uh, kids all love candy, right? Just like their daddy, uh, we have sweet teeth. And so uh, Elise is not allowed to eat candy. Sometimes we'll give her ice cream, and uh, she loves it. But uh, candy is only reserved for the big kids, right? For Olive and me. I'm just saying, for, uh, for, for Manny and Elijah, okay? So they eat candy. And one day uh, we said, okay, you guys are, are, have been good. You've made some good choices. You've done well. We're going to applaud you. So we're going to give you uh, one candy that you want. And so uh, whatever Elijah wants, it doesn't matter. He is all, he's such a kind-hearted person that he will always submit that to whatever Manny wants. So whatever Manny wants, Elijah says, I want that also. And so uh, Manny on this particular day wanted a Skittle. Wanted, well, she wanted Skittles, but the, 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 uh, you know, the reward was you get one Skittle. They were cheap like that. She wanted to taste the rainbow, but we only had one flavor for her. So there was only one. <laughs> only one left. And so uh, Manny said, ooh, I want that one, I want that one. And Elijah said, ooh, I want that one, I want that one. I said, listen, there's only one left. And so Elijah's like, I'll eat it then. And Manny said, no, 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 no. Elijah, Elijah, no, I wanted it first. So here's what I did. I took that Skittle and I tried to break it in half. If you're like a deprived child and you never had a Skittle, a Skittle is like tiny. It's the size of your, your, your pinky nail. It's tiny. And so they both wanted it. They wouldn't stop unless they got it. And so to try and, have you ever tried to break a Skittle? I, I've tried on many occasions because uh, sometimes I'll like want to give them Skittles and Olive says, no, that's too much. Just give them one. And so I'll, I'll have to split it in half. And I realize the best way to do it 
You take that Skittle, which is in the shape of a circle, and you flatten it till it becomes like a pancake. And then you can take a knife, right? This is really like elaborate for, to, to try and keep their glucose levels down. But take a knife, and then you cut it, and then because it's been smushed, you can actually uh, divide it in half. But the problem is, by the time you smush it, half of the candy coating has gotten on your hand. And by the time you break it in half, the rest of it falls onto the floor. And so when you get it, both of them end up with just pieces, and both of them end up upset, and nobody is happy. Because you can split a lot of things in life. You can cut a donut in half. (laughs) You can cut an Oreo in half. But you cannot cut a a Skittle in half because it was not meant to be divided. And the same thing is true with marriage. When two become one, it was not meant to be split into two again. And when it does, it gets messy and people get upset. And this is God's teaching on marriage. In fact, he says in Malachi chapter 2, God puts plainly, he says, I hate divorce. Because God's desire... And God's design is that when two become one, they would be in a committed covenantal relationship until death separates them. He said it is a covenant. It's not a contract. A contract can be broken at any time. All the cell phone companies know that and all the, you know, the cable companies know that. You can break a contract. There will be fees involved, but you can do it. But a covenant is not something that can be broken. God says marriage is designed to be permanent. It is designed to be forever. And he goes so far as to say, I hate divorce. But the problem in our world is that we've made it very easy for divorce to happen. I was talking with my friend a couple months ago. My friend is a pastor out in another state. And I hadn't seen him for about a year. And we got together and we were talking, catching up about life. And started talking about some of the things that were happening in his church, but more importantly, in his family. And he said that uh, a few years ago, uh, there was an illness within uh, the, the family, not the nuclear, but the extended family. There's an illness, and that caused a lot of damage to their relationship, added stress on top of the stress of being in you know, all the stuff of, of life and work and job and ministry and things like that. And so he said some time ago, his wife, because of all of the stress and just withdrawing and all those things, uh, she had an affair. And when he found out and he confronted her about it, she said, basically, I did, but we can't make this work anymore. And he said, listen, I forgive you. Let's work at it. They have a young daughter, four or five years old. said, let's do it for the sake of our child. Let's make it work. And she said, I am too tired and I don't have the strength to make it work anymore. I don't want to fight for it anymore. And in the state that he lives in, all it takes is one of the married people to sign a certificate of divorce in order to make that divorce official doesn't take two, just one. Just one person says, I want out, and that's the way it is. And they deliver that divorce certificate by certified mail, and they say, you need to sign this. 
not as an acceptance, but the fact that you have received the annulment of marriage that's already been done because she signed the paper. And as we were talking, he said, the, 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 the hardest thing for me, this is what he said. I went to the doctor because I had some health issues. And as I was filling out the paperwork, okay, filling out the paperwork, there's this place that said marital status. It's single, married, divorced. And he said, this is when it really hit me. He said, do I really need to mark this column that says I'm divorced? I need to check that box. And as he was telling that, he said, you know, it hurts me that I am now a statistic. One of the ones, a Christ follower, who has been in a divorce, gone through a divorce. He said, and it eats me alive inside. It's a tragedy that we live in a culture where it is so easy to take what God said should not be separated and to just throw that away by a simple signature. God said, this is my design, that the two will become one. As long as we know in the back of our minds, see, people go into marriage these days thinking if it doesn't work out, you just get a divorce. And as long as there's an out clause, it makes it simple for people to say, yeah, if it doesn't work out, out of convenience, out of inconvenience, for whatever reason, she burnt the toast today, she burnt the toast for the last week, she can't cook to save her life, or he smells funny, just, that's it. And that's the culture that we live in. But what Jesus is saying is that we have been called as people of God to be countercultural. We don't take our cues from government laws. We don't take our cues from uh, the teachings of society or from the teachings of media. We live a different way because we've been called to be countercultural. First thought here is that God's design for marriage, that marriage was designed to be permanent. First thing. Second thing. Second thing that we see is that God allowed divorce to protect the vulnerable. God allowed divorce. Get that language right. God allowed divorce because they say in, in, in Matthew 19, Moses commanded them to divorce. And he's saying, no, no, no. God allows divorce to protect the vulnerable. In the time that from the time of Genesis to the time of Deuteronomy, here's what was happening. People were getting married. Men and women were getting married. But the problem was women were devalued in that society were devalued in that culture in the Near East and the ancient times. There was a, a, just a very chauvinistic, uh, yeah, just a just strongly hierarchical society where women were devalued and men were seen as, as the kind of be-all, end-all. And so what would happen is that a lot of times, for whatever reason, these men would dismiss these women. Say, you know what? Fell in love with you at one point, but uh, I've fallen out of love with you now. And so they would just send their wives away. And they would just annul the marriage. And that was happening all the time. That was happening all the time to the point. And you know what happens in those days? If you're a woman and you get sent out of the home, it's not like today where you've got a job. Uh, You have no money. That's why the, the command in the Bible is always care for the widows, care for the orphans. Why? Because they have no income. They have no way to sustain their lives. They have no way to make ends meet. They have no way to put it all together. And so they're vulnerable. And they're susceptible to being taken advantage of. And so that was happening in that culture. In the Jewish culture, women were just being divorced at the, at the, at the whim of a man. 
And so because of the hardness of the hearts of these men, Moses said, okay, because of the hardness of your heart, right? That's what it says in in, uh, Matthew 19, verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. And so he gave four stipulations. The first thing is that you can... Well, if you're, if you're going to do it anyways, then here's the way you've got to do it. Four things. He said the first thing is that there's got to be a serious cause. And the operative word was that there had to be indecency found in the woman. Okay? There had to be indecency found in the wife. And this word indecency is the word that was used. <laughs> this was the word used to describe poop. Okay? Doo-doo, right? feces, yucky stuff. And so the word to describe poop is the word that he's using to describe what needed to be found in the woman, right? Not not that she goes poop, but there's something that vile and that serious and that disgusting that she did. That and that alone would be the cause for divorce. There had to be indecency found in her. And so they said, well, this is a serious reason. Can't just be because uh, she woke up one morning and she said, good morning, and she had bad breath. It had to be more than that. Something indecent about her. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they had to sign a certificate of a divorce. What that did was it stated the charges, stated the man, stated the woman. It's an official thing that made their divorce official. Couldn't just kick them out, but she would get this paper so that she could walk around with it so that people didn't think that she was just kind of like a common prostitute in those days. Uh, she used to be married, but now she's not. She says, but I've got a certificate of divorce that says my marriage has been annulled. The reason for that was to make it official so that these men didn't just go off and, and, and just commit divorce whenever they wanted to. So this was given to the woman, and it's, it's like, you know, it's, now it's Facebook official. Okay? Now it's official that your status has changed. You are now a divorced person. The third stipulation was that that had to be given in the presence of two witnesses. What the witnesses would do is they would see that charge and they would say either that's serious enough or it's not serious enough. At the same time, what that would do is these witnesses would be the one to take care of that woman in the event that she could not take care of herself, which would be all the time. And then the fourth stipulation, if you read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5, the last stipulation is that he could not ever marry her again. Never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever, ever marry her again. Why? Because he wanted to teach that marriage is not a revolving door. You kick her out. Hey, come back, come back, come back. I need you. I'll holler back at you. Come back. And then, oh, okay, go, go away, go away. And then, oh, come back, come back. It's not like that. So the marriage and divorce, the divorce certificate was meant to scare them into seeing the serious reality that divorce was in order to prevent them from being victims of just being discarded because he didn't like them that day. And that's what the purpose of the law of the command was. Well, not the the, the command that if you do divorce, you need to do it in this way. And so that's the heart of the command. That God permitted, as much as he hates it, he says, I will permit it in order that the vulnerable would be protected. 
But in time, again, what happened was that they began to loosely define what indecency was. So that by the time Jesus rolled around, the rabbinical teaching was that indecency could be defined however the man wanted to define it. So again, literally the example that the rabbis used was if you didn't like her cooking, or if she didn't smell the right way, or if you just decided one day that she doesn't look decent anymore, that you could sign off on the certificate of divorce and give it to her, and the divorce could be made done. So that's the culture into which Jesus is talking, and the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. And so the Pharisees come and they say, you know what, we we haven't done any of this stuff. Remember from last week, they said, we haven't committed adultery. And Jesus says, no, it's not about the act, it's about the heart. So what is the heart? Jesus says all the way back, he says in in chapter 5, he says, listen, um, you've heard it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, this is what Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries her commits adultery also. So Jesus is saying, you can't just go around and divorce people however you want. He says the only reason why you ought to have the permission to divorce is if there has been marital unfaithfulness. It's the only reason. He says if you divorce for any other reason, here's what you're doing. You're committing adultery. And you're causing her to commit adultery as well. You think that adultery is just about you're married and you go sleep with somebody who's not your, your, your spouse. He says, no, 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 no. Let me break it down for you. If you had lust in your heart, you've already committed a- adultery. And two, for all y'all who think you've been uh, clear, cleared of this adultery charge, you go around being serial divorcees, then you've got to understand right, you're committing multiple times over adultery. Here's what Jesus is saying. Okay? Here's what Jesus is saying at the, at the heart of it. Saying You think that by divorcing your husband or wife, by divorcing your wife, you're going to fix your problems. Because you're not. You're going to multiply those problems because you're causing all these people to commit adultery. That's what he's saying. That logic is so apropos today, isn't it? A lot of times we think, you know what? My marriage is a dead end. It stinks. I'm going to fix it by getting a divorce. Jesus says, no. It's the opposite. You think divorcing is going to fix your marriage? It's not. It's going to compound those. Your problems are going to have more problems, and they're going to multiply. And those problems are going to have more babies and more problems. You cannot fix a broken marriage with divorce. Now, you can't. That's not, that's not the heart of it all. And he's scaling it back to get at the heart of the matter. Like so many times, this is what people... Man, I have a friend. He and his wife are, are both children of divorce and he says you know the hard hard part for me is that whenever october november december january rolls around the hap- happiest time of the year is the hardest and most stressful time why because my dad and my stepmom expect us to be home for the holidays My mom and my stepdad expect us to be home for the holidays. Her mom and her stepdad expect her to be home for the holidays. Her dad and her stepmom. There's four people fighting for the attention of their family. He says, man, divorce has just compounded all of these issues in my life and in our lives. 
and it's made it so difficult for us. And Jesus saying, you think it's the easy way out, but it's not, and it's not, it's not. I think again, and that's why God says, I hate divorce because of all of the ripple effects that it has on unsuspecting people. But God allows it in order to protect the vulnerable. He says one case, if you have been the victim of adultery, at that point, divorce is not the first option. Reconciliation, forgiveness, that's the first option. But if it gets to the point where it is beyond repair, then divorce is allowable at that point. But Jesus is saying that's the only reason, that's the only time, the only place. Why? Because in the Old Testament, what happened? If someone committed adultery, they'd get killed. They'd get stoned, right? So Jesus is saying if they commit adultery in the New Testament time, we're not going to kill them, but they are as good as dead to you because they have broken that one flesh union. The two become one, but when they cheat, they unite themselves with another. That marriage bond has been annulled. And at that point, it is allowable for you to divorce. Not commanded, not commended, but it is allowable. And then as you get later in the New Testament, there's a second stipulation in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, and on where Paul says the other time when it is allowable for a divorce to happen is if two unbelievers have become married and one becomes a believer and the unbelieving spouse deserts them. Because in that case, divorce is again acceptable. Not commanded, not advised, but it is allowable. Because God's design for marriage is for marriage to be permanent, but he allowed divorce in order to protect the vulnerable. That's the second thing, the last thing then. The last thing then is that we need to fight for marriage. Uh, One of my professors, John Frame, he... uh, distinguishes between certain kinds of ethical responsibility that we have. And I think this is, this is uh, important for us to understand. The first thing in, in the Bible, there are commands and there are prohibitions. Do this, don't do this. This is Ten Commandments. This is law. If you don't do these things, we're sinning, right? It, it's simple. Uh, do this. Have no other gods before me. Don't do this. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't cheat. All that stuff. Don't lie. If you break these things, you're committing sin, right? Clear. That's the first thing. The second thing are things that God allows, like God permits. And one of these things that God permits is divorce. He permits it. The third kind is something that God approves of. He expresses his approval over certain things. There are certain things that God, uh, there's a difference between good and better in the economy of God. You know, like uh, the example that that, uh, you might see in the, uh, I think in the Gospel of Luke, there's a Old woman, a widow, she doesn't have a lot of money. She's got two copper coins, but she puts both copper coins into the offering basket. And Jesus commends her for that. Okay, two copper coins. She appro- he approves of that action. It doesn't mean that if you don't do that, it's sin. doesn't mean that if she only put in one, that she'd be sinning. But he's saying, it, she put in both, and I approve of that. There's a difference between good and better when it comes to ethical responsibility. 
And the point of the approval is that it would motivate us to obedience and to greater sacrifice for God. There's approval, and then there's disapproval, things that God does not approve of. A lot of times we get so fixated upon the commands and the prohibition. What does God want me to do and what does he not want me to do? And when we become focused only on those things, it's easy for us to become legalistic. God said, don't commit adultery, and therefore I'm not going to commit adultery. But we, as followers of Christ, need to be concerned about the approval and the disapproval of God also. Because the heart of the believer is not, how much can I get away with, but the heart of the commands the heart of the law, the heart of ethical living in light of the gospel is how can I most honor God? And so here it is. God allows, God permits divorce, but he does not approve of it. You get what, you get what I'm saying here, right? He allows it, but he doesn't approve of it. He permits it, but he doesn't applaud that. He says it's okay, but the question we need to ask is, it, is it the best It is permitted, it is permissible, but is this the best thing as a child of God? See, unless we understand these things, then we will take the high road, I'm sorry, the easy road the majority of the time. God says, listen, marriage is forever. I allow divorce in these situations, but you've got to constantly ask yourself, what is the best thing? What is the most or the more right thing? Because at the end of the day, it's not just, hey, don't commit adultery, don't divorce. He's saying on the back end, right? We've seen this. My heart is yours. Not just my acts, but my heart. What is the heart of it? The heart is that we exalt the beauty and the sanctity of covenant marriage because in it we see the clearest picture of God's love for his church. And so he says, that's why we fight for marriage. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. It means, one, if you're single, that you understand what marriage is. And you go into marriage with your eyes wide open. Uh, we had one, uh, one of our former harvesters just got engaged, a girl named Sandra. And as she was telling me, texting me the story, the first question she asked me, I was asking a bunch of questions. But the first question she asked me is, will you do our marriage? And then the second thing she said, can you counsel us? Can there be premarital counseling? See, we, in, our, in our day, we spend so much time preparing for our wedding for one day. But we don't spend nearly as much time preparing for our marriage, which ought to last forever. Spend all this time, all this energy, all this money, all this stress for one day that you will probably forget most of. But we don't spend enough time preparing for our actual marriage. And so a lot of us go into marriage with all of these myths. My life stinks. As long as I get married, everything's going to be great. It's not. I struggle with lust and pornography. As soon as I get married, all that's going to go away. It's not. Who you are as a single person is who you are when you're a married person. That's not going to change you. I go into it with your eyes wide open. You struggle with, uh, when I get stressed out, I go shopping online all the time. You struggle with that before marriage, you're probably going to struggle with it after marriage. You've got to go in with your eyes open to seeing what marriage is about. I read books, You and Me Forever, Francis Chan, The Meaning of Marriage. Sit in uh, Eugene's Meaning of Marriage class. Get sober about what marriage is. If you're in a dating relationship, do it right. Do it in community. Do it right. Get the advice of people who love you, who are praying for you, who understand. 
Remember the Old Testament, three reasons why people constantly fell, godly people fell, is because they chased after idols, because they got tripped up with the opposite gender, and they did not listen to their spiritual authorities. Three reasons, Old Testament. You see it all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, why godly people fall and they fail. I do it right from the beginning. Understand what is at stake. If you're in a marriage, you fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. I saw this article by uh, Tom, uh, Tommy Nelson. He's a marriage counselor. And he says, this is why. You, you wonder why a divorce, why adultery happens. He said, here's the anatomy. Let me break it down and show you how easy it is. He says, it begins with E, eliminating intimacy from your marriage. Have you eliminated intimacy from your marriage? Right, fight for that again. Fight for it. Out of necessity, maybe some of us had to uh, uh, sleep separately from our, par- from our spouse. Right? Don't allow that to become habit. Don't allow that to become regular. Get back together. Physical, emotional, spiritual intimacy. Make it happen. I, 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 I talked to someone who, you know, and you hear this more and more. A lot, a lot of Korean families been married 30, 40 years, and then you hear out of, out of nowhere, it seems like they're getting a divorce. What? After 35 years, I was talking with someone, uh, an, an elder from the Pacific Northwest on, uh, on yesterday, yesterday morning, right before I left Houston, and uh, he'd been married for all these years, and I said, uh, as we were having a conversation, basically, um, I tell him, I, I talk with people who've been married for all these years, and as soon as their children go to college, they realize as they try to relate to one another, right, they've completely forgotten how to relate to one another apart from the kids, how to have a conversation without involving children. And they realize, wow, the woman I married 35 years ago is a completely different person. Man I married 30 years ago is a completely different person. And they say, we, this, is, this is not the person I married. And don't let that happen. Small compromise, small compromise that causes ships to sink. Fight for that intimacy. Make it happen. Kiss your spouse. Hold their hand. Sit together, cuddle, do the things that you did when you were in love. And remind yourself that you still are. The first thing that happens when divorce and adultery creep in the anatomy, the first thing is that there's an elimination of intimacy. The second thing is you encounter someone else. Some way, and you see that they've got something that your spouse doesn't have. And you're attracted to it. The third thing is you begin to enjoy that. Enjoy the company. You enjoy the approval. You enjoy the affection. The fourth thing is you expedite ways to get together with those people, to put yourself into uh, the path of their path in order that you see each other. And then you express that. No one's going to say, oh, you know what? I'm falling for you. But they'll say things like, my, my husband doesn't treat me. I wish my husband did that. I wish my spouse, my wife did that. And you've already built a bridge to Fantasy Island. The last thing you need to do is just experience and cross that bridge. Listen, it all starts with eliminating intimacy from marriage. We've got to, we've got to fight. We've got to fight for it. We've got to fight for it. Fight for your marriage. And make it happen, whatever it takes. And the great gift that God has given to us. We fight for this, right? We work at this. We uphold the beauty and the sanctity of marriage in community with one another. You know, the, the, the figures about children of divorce who end up committing all these shootings and stuff, 
That's true. But at the same time, there's a great majority of these kids who don't do that. Why? A lot of it is because they found a surrogate family within the church. They find that when a family, nuclear family, fails them and falls apart, that there's a house church family. There is a, a, a father figure, a mother figure, somebody who comes into my life and who believes in me, who gives me what was lacking in my life and provides that for them. This is, this is why the church is so important. And if you've got issues in your marriage, you've got issues in your singlehood, you've got issues in your dating relationship, get that out in the open in your community and allow them to fight for you. Allow them to be there for you. Allow them to, to stand for you. Allow them when your marriage feels like it's paralyzed and done and you can't even get to Jesus, let them be the friends who carry you on your mat and get you into the presence of God for healing. And we got to fight for this, guys. We are not of this world. We don't follow the culture. We are countercultural. And God calls us to this. He calls us to this kind of a life. Why? Because he loves marriage. And can we say, as followers of Christ, I'm going I'm to eliminate this word from our vocabulary. I'm not even going to think about it. The moment this is brought up, you talk about divorce with your spouse, again, the foundation has laid for a bridge that you've already begun to lay. I don't talk. Eliminate that. Before you get to that place, I talk to your house church shepherd. And come talk to me. Talk to people whose marriage you respect. Let's fight for it. It doesn't have to be that way. We're not going to be a statistic because God loves marriage. He hates divorce. But here's another reality that we have to understand, that as much as these things are true, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that divorce is the unpardonable sin. And there's so much grace, so much grace for those who've been hurt, for those who've been devastated, for families that have been put asunder because of the sinful effects of divorce. But even so, why, why does God have such a soft spot for the vulnerable, for the divorced, for the broken, for the children of divorce? Why? His vision for what marriage is to be, that marriage would be the clearest and most beautiful picture of what it's like for God to love his bride, a bride that includes you and me who have committed every reason for God to divorce us. I've been so indecent I've been filthy. I've done serious crimes against God. I've hurt him. I've been immoral. I've committed adultery many times over against God. He has every reason to divorce me, but he doesn't. He loved me at Calvary, and knowing my sin, he continues to love me, and he continues to pursue me, and he continues to hold me, and not even death will separate his love from me. It's the same for all of us. Whether you've been hurt by divorce, whether you've hurt others by divorce, whether you're thinking about it, whether you've committed all kinds, whatever it is that you've done, 
God waits with tear-filled eyes, with an overflowing heart of love and compassion, with open arms pierced by nails that say, I took the curse of the adulterer. I took the curse of the divorcee in order that you might have the covenant faithfulness that only the purest of brides deserve. But I will be faithful to you until the end and nothing will ever take that away. Why? Because even though you've cheated on me, even though you failed, even though you've messed up, still you are my sunshine, my only sunshine, and nothing will take that sunshine away. Let's uh, surrender to the Lord God, um, our hearts, whatever may be, whatever may be inside. Uh, maybe there's, um, we feel guilty over sins that we've committed. And maybe um, whether you've been unfaithful to your spouse or whether you've uh, committed divorce or uh, you've hurt others through not upholding a beautiful vision of marriage. We may still be together and be painting a negative picture of marriage for our children. First things first, guys, it's sin. And if we have not confessed and repented of our sin, uh, let's repent before God. Let's call it sin and say, God, I agree with you that I have sinned. I pray that you would forgive me and that you would cleanse me. And if you've already done that or as you do that, let's receive not only his forgiveness, but his deep infilling of healing and of restoration. Maybe you have been hurt because of divorce. Your parents divorced or... And you've just been so angry at them, been so bitter, and you've hardened your heart to them, to God, to other people because of it. Can we just confess that to God? And say, Lord, I'm hurt. And I'm sad. And I'm angry. By the grace of God, help me to forgive. Help me to forgive those who've wronged me, those who've hurt me. And maybe some of us in here have a lot to repent and then a lot to receive from God. For others of us in your singlehood, you pray to God, Lord, help me to be faithful to you, to understand what it is to be devoted to you as my first love, as my purest love, as my truest love, as my deepest joy. Lord, help me to be faithful. And for those who are married, let's pray for our marriage. Fight for that intimacy. Fight for your marriage, for the institution of marriage has been thrown on the rocks of secularism, of political correctness. Let's fight for our marriage and pray, God, renew intimacy, restore love, renew passion, uphold commitment, Lord, that our marriage will be a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. Some of you pray for your parents' marriages. You look at them, you, you just see perfect strangers living on one under one roof until one of them dies. Let's pray for more. That there will be love, there will be joy, there will be intimacy, there will be understanding again. Let's take a few moments right now just to pray. However 
you need to respond to this teaching. Let's pray to God. Lord, I need your help. I need you, Lord. I need you, God. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Pray for the marriages of your friends. Pray for the marriages of harvesters in here. Pray that through healthy marriages, healthy churches will be built around the world. Let's pray for this. Let's spend a few moments responding and praying, interceding as we fight for marriage. Sunday of October, as we who have been baptized and confirmed prepare to come to the table of grace. As we think about the Jesus who paid it all for us, let's confess and repent of any sin within our heart. To not only name the sin for what it is, but to grieve it, that it has hurt God. Not that it's hurt you, not that it's hurt other people necessarily, not that you might get caught in a sin, but that it hurts God. That's what we grieve when we genuinely repent. And then to make a choice to turn away and to walk towards Jesus, to do the opposite of what we have been doing, to live in the holiness that God calls us to live. So whether we come to the table or not, let's use this as a spiritual shower as we seek cleansing from God right now, to sit under the never-ending fountain of the precious blood of Jesus. Let's receive cleansing as we confess and as we repent of our sins before we come to this table of grace. Let's pray. doesn't flow uphill to those who think that they don't need it, but it always flows to those who recognize how messed up our sins have made us to be and how messed up our lives are because of our sin. Pray that you would renew us and 
that you would awaken us to your grace again. Pray that you would open our eyes to see how wondrous the cross is and how beautiful your love and affection for us are. So show us the grace that we need in order to live for you in faithfulness and fidelity and purity and holiness. Thank you for we love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.